I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 23 for our Old Testament reading this morning. I think it's a familiar psalm, a psalm that reminds us of the comfort that our Savior brings as He cares as a tender shepherd for His people in times of sickness, in times of affliction, and trouble, and death. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. Uh, now, turning with me to the book of Acts, chapter 19, for a New Testament reading. Uh, here, we are given uh, background uh, to the events and circumstances with which Paul references in our sermon text this morning in 2 Corinthians. We'll not read uh, this entire section, but we will read uh, significant portions of it. Acts 19, uh, 21 uh, through chapter 20, verse 6. If you recall, this more or less picks up where we had our New Testament reading last week. Uh, Paul has recently left the city of Corinth and has now made his way back to Asia Minor, uh, that the region of western Turkey uh, and Syria. Uh, chapter 19 of Acts, verse 21, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, of course, Achaia is the region where Corinth resides, and to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, that of Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, early name for the Christian faith. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And so he gathered these men together with the workmen in similar trades and said this, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And verses 28 through the rest of the chapter describe a riot that ensues at the instigation of these men, a riot that uh, nearly threatens uh, Paul, well, that does threaten Paul uh, and his ministry. So now jumping down to chapter 20, verse 1, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Sedundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. 
And these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. Now turning with me for our uh, scripture uh, text this morning for the sermon, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as we give our attention to verses 3 to 11. Here Paul extols the God of all comfort and gives uh, an example of how it is that the Lord has comforted him, comforted him in his afflictions. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort as well. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endured the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he also will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And so you also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. This is God's word. Let's go before him and pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the reading of your word. We ask this morning that you'd bless the preaching of it, that you would strengthen our hearts and comfort it with the promises of the gospel. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I, I think it's easy to say that all of us are going through a pretty uh, difficult time right now uh, with the, the, the various events that are swirling in the world around us, be it uh, sickness or, or the fear of sickness, uh, employment, uh, the fear of losing our job in the midst of uh, such an economy, the frustrations that attend uh, all these circumstances, the, the cabin fever, even the, the mental health concerns. Um, I think, if anything, the mental, mental stress for all of us has been, been quite unnerving. And I think there's a temptation that we all have, or at least many of us might have, is the temptation to turn inward, or the temptation to retreat, the anger to blame somebody. I think it's so easy for us to blow a gasket, even at those that we love the most, even at those who have never even intended any harm. I think the first question that we're prone to ask in the midst of suffering, not just this uh, particular circumstance that we're undergoing, but any uh, trial or affliction is why. Why is this happening? I think it's an important question at times, but it's a question that sometimes uh, becomes our only question, and it it eludes us, it keeps us uh, from, I think, a more important question is what should we do? I think Paul's letter here this morning gives us some reasons why God has ordained his children to suffer. Uh, But more importantly, he gives us a way forward. 
think there's two parts to this passage I'd like us to tackle, and I'd actually like us to tackle them in reverse order. Uh, First, we'll consider verses 8 to 11. We simply call that of context. We'll understand the context, the circumstances uh, within which Paul is writing to understand why it is that he's writing the way he does. And it will lead us back to verses 3 to 7, part 2, as we could simply call it consolation. might call it comfort, depending upon the translation that you have. I think one thing to notice right off the bat in verses 3 to 7 is the word comfort appears 10 times. More times than suffering and affliction appears words uh, together. I think that should give us a hint as to what Paul is saying and the direction he is moving So we'll consider first the context, verses 8 to 11, and then the consolation of verses 3 to 7. You see this, what Paul says here in verses, uh, beginning in verse 8, says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. I think one of the difficulties in reading this particular letter is how occasional the letter is. What do I mean by that? Well, if you read, for instance, uh, Paul's letter uh, to the church of Ephesus, uh, it's, it's something that you can kind of drop in the middle of nowhere. It, it, it's something that, that comes where you don't really need to know the broader circumstances uh, that's surrounding the issues that Ephesus faces. Uh, not so with this letter. Paul is writing a very specific, what we call an occasional letter, a letter that is uh, focused on very specific needs and circumstances uh, that the church is facing And so for us to understand why it is that Paul's writing and what it is that he's addressing, we have to take the time to think about those specific circumstances. I think the first thing to note is that when Paul is speaking of Asia, I think many of us think of China. But Paul's not thinking of China here. Rather, Asia was the name of a Roman province, uh, what we would call uh, Western Turkey uh, by uh, today's standards. And the capital of this Roman province was the great city of Ephesus. Uh, It was actually the capital city, not just of uh, the Roman province of Asia, what we might call Asia Minor, but also it was the capital of the worship of the great goddess, uh, uh, at least by pagan standards, great, you know what I mean, the goddess uh, Artemis. I'm not endorsing paganism, Um, but they referred to her as Artemis uh, the Great. And it's very likely that Paul's referring to the circumstances that we had read uh, just a few moments ago in Acts chapter 19. Uh, the trouble that he caused while he was in Asia. Uh, here's uh, Paul, the rebel rouser in many ways, right? Some months after Paul had left Corinth, he had made his way to Ephesus, um, this uh, important city within the Roman Empire. And uh, as, you know, the old uh, 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 ditty goes, double, double toil and trouble, uh, Paul undergoes a double trouble uh, here uh, in this particular crisis. The first uh, particular trouble he faces is that of uh, the Gentile idol makers. Uh, you heard uh, it said, even as we had uh, Acts 19 read, where, where the idol makers said, hey, uh, this has uh, this is, uh, put a big dent in the wallet. You know, as, as the idol makers are looking at, it, at their prophets and recognizing that their prophets have dropped because of Paul's preaching. As Paul is preaching against idolatry, guess what? People are responding in faith. And guess what that means? People are getting rid of their idols. People are not buying more idols. It is actually making a dent in the economy. Uh, I have a, 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 had a professor in seminary who said, uh, whenever you're reading history and you're trying to look at why things develop the way they do, he says, one of the first things you need to do is to follow the money. Uh, see what is happening, uh, and then you could get a good grasp of why people respond the way that they do. The businessmen are upset because uh, they've suffered great profit losses uh, from Paul's uh, preaching. So what did they do? They conspired together against Paul to incite a riot. 
Um, it's a lot to have weighing on your conscience when a, when a mob riot breaks out as a result of your preaching. Um, you know, as um, maybe a particular uh, modern analogy, what do you think would happen if um, uh, the, the gospel preaching churches in the San Fernando Valley preached to such an extent that the porn industry just dried up overnight? Who would get, who would get mad? Who would get the maddest, I should say? It'd be the ones who are making the most money off of uh, that particular industry. You could only imagine the response that that would elicit. Well, this is uh, the same thing we are finding here. Uh, Paul's preaching against Artemis, uh, the pagan goddess of fertility and sexual pleasure, uh, has reaped its rewards in reclaiming Christians, uh, reclaiming pagans uh, to Christ, where they have repented. And yet now uh, the the kingdom of darkness is uh, on the assault. Uh, They have taken up arms, so to speak, against Paul. Kind of intense situation. Think of the pressure this faces uh, for Paul. After uh, things have calmed down a bit, Paul does leave. He kind of goes, maybe not necessarily into hiding, but he does think it is best for him to move on to continue his missionary endeavors elsewhere, at least for the time being. So he heads to Macedonia, this region just north of Corinth, and it leads to the second crisis that he has to undergo. Now think about this. The Gentiles are out to get him, so he leaves perhaps even flees. He leaves, and he goes to another region, and what happens next, as we heard, Jewish assassins, right? There's these Jewish zealots who have taken up a call to arms to have Paul put to death, who are chasing him from city to city to city, and as we read in Acts, Paul actually has to change his route. He has to change his destination a couple times simply to evade certain death. Now think about Paul's uh, kind of psychological uh, framework, if you would, in this particular circumstance. Think of the impact this must have had uh, to the mind of, of the early Jews. Uh, the, the, their taxonomy for the world around them consisted of two groups, Jews and Gentiles. Now you have Gentiles seeking to kill Paul, and you have Jews seeking to kill Paul. From Paul's perspective, the whole world is against him. And surely they were, seeking to track him down, going from city to city to kill him. Everyone, it seems, is out to get him. There's no safe haven, it seems. There is no place of refuge. And so he says here in verse 8, he's, he felt so burdened excessively, so beyond strength, that he despaired of life itself. I think sometimes we might think of Paul as this you know, kind of Superman figure that has a big S emblazoned under his tunic. Um, but that's just not the case. Um, Paul uh, was a, a man of, of, of immense integrity and strength and boldness, but it doesn't mean uh, that he, he didn't fear for his life at times. He likens the afflictions that he's, uh, he's experiencing as a death sentence, whether it was an actual death sentence by a civil magistrate or you know, just the feeling that everybody's out to get him. The fact that you know that there is a plot of assassins trying to kill you uh, would probably have you lose at least a little bit of sleep at night. He suffers from afflictions, both physical and mental. Later on in this letter, he'll speak of the physical anguish he endures with the so-called thorn in his side. He writes in another letter how how difficult it is for him to to read with his own eyes, uh, with with his failing eyesight. From his perspective, all he sees around him is certain doom and certain death. Uh, The jig is up, as they might say. This perhaps is the end. And he uses language here that likens him to to a ship being undone in the midst of a storm. Pressures from without, pressures from within. Uh, in other words, Paul is being dashed against the rocks. Paul's being put through the meat grinder. And you think that the, the questions that would arise as Paul is laying uh, under the stars at night, why? 
Hasn't, hasn't the Lord called me to be an apostle to the Gentiles? Didn't the Lord set Paul aside for this very purpose? Hasn't the mission to the Gentile work just begun in Corinth only months earlier? And now it looks like the mission is coming to an end. There seems like there is no salvation. There is uh, no way out. You can think of the confusion that this uh, would cause in Paul's own mind. And yet Paul tells Corinth why he had been tossed into the furnace is to bring an end to self-reliance. He says it was so that we would not trust in ourselves, but to trust in God who does the impossible, to trust in the God who raises the dead. It's the, it's the funny thing about uh, human nature. I think we're, we're always apt to trust our own resources. And so long as we have our own abilities to fall back on, everything will be hunky-dory. So long as we can boast about our uh, abilities to get the job done, there's always that temptation, of course, then to ascribe any type of spiritual accomplishment to our own strength, to our own know-how, rather than to ascribe uh, uh, glory to the Lord himself. You think of, I mean, this is one of the recurring themes you see throughout the Old Testament. You think of Abraham. When the Lord promised Abraham a son, didn't give Abraham a son when he was 30 or 45, He gave Abraham and his wife Sarah a son when they were well past the age of childbearing years. Let them know this was not from their own works. They had nothing to contribute to this. You think of Gideon and the the army as his army is stripped down to just 300 men against an entire imperial force. The Lord does it to show that it is not by might, it is not by power, but it is by the Spirit of the Lord and none other. And so the Lord has brought Paul to an, to an end of his rope. The goal here is not to drive Paul towards morbid introspection. It's not to, to drive him further inward. Rather, it was done. The suffering that he was undergoing was to teach him to rely daily on the Lord's own salvation. How the Lord delivers us and will deliver us, yes, on the last day, but the Lord has also promised to be with us in the midst of daily afflictions and trials. The Lord has caused Paul to suffer to direct his focus not inward, but outward and upward. Not to become self-reliant, but become more reliant upon the Lord. The Lord will provide every step of the way. But it also teaches Paul to become reliant upon other believers as well. As you see here, the Lord delivered Paul. You see this in verse 11. How did he deliver him? Through particular means, right? Through the prayers of the saints. Prayers are what we call a means of grace. It's a channel of grace. The Lord delights to answer prayer. It's one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from Islam. Islam just goes, well, the, Lord's, the Lord wills it. Allah wills it. And it's just resignation. They don't do anything. Yet here in the Christian faith, we are called and encouraged to come before the Lord, to bring our requests before him because he delights to answer our prayers. It's why we spend so much time uh, in prayer during the worship service. You notice we have so many different times that we pray. This is not just to to, to knock off a a checkbox in the liturgical order of worship. It's to recognize that the Lord answers prayers. Opening him a prayer of adoration or invocation is inviting the Lord to be with his people, asking him to descend. The confession of faith is is the prayer that the Lord has called us to pray even daily to forgive us our debts with a great promise that he will forgive us 
And as he calls us, as you see here, to pray for the needs of the church, not just this individual congregation, but the prayers of the saints around the world, we come with boldness and confidence knowing that the Lord indeed will hear our prayers. That is why we must take prayer seriously. So it should come as a little surprise that Paul opens his letter adoring and praising God. As Paul begins every letter of his with with an, uh, an invocational prayer, Uh, Blessing God, in this case, as the God of all comfort. Paul has given a specific instance of of the Lord's deliverance, but now uh, he he applies these broader principles. Uh, As he's given a specific example, as the Lord has comforted him, uh, Paul shows us in these opening verses that this is true not only for Paul as an apostle, but it is true for all believers Paul praises God as the source of all comfort, this, as, as if to say that, that the comfort is found in no other fountain, no other wellspring, but the great and triune God. So why would we try to find our comfort or consolation in any other source? Because there is no other source. That's why we, we confessed uh, the, the, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism today as our confession of faith. What is your only comfort in life and death? that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has forgiven me of all my sins and will not allow a hair to fall from my head apart from my Father's gracious will. It doesn't say he won't allow any harm to befall me. It's what we confess is that any harm that does befall us does not happen outside the scope of God's sovereignty. And so just as the Lord uh, uh, brings affliction, so also does he bring comfort because he brings comfort and affliction both for a purpose course, we have to ask what we mean by comfort, shouldn't we? I think we live in a world where comfort is often a commodity or a luxury. We uh, speak of eating comfort food. Uh, If you're going on a trip, you might stay at the Comfort Inn. Uh, I sleep with a comforter on my bed. uh, If you're looking for some type of self-help manual, you might read Oprah's Book of Comfort. I would not recommend it. We speak of the comforts of home. Some people would think uh, that drinking Southern Comfort is something that's enjoyable. I assure you, it is not Um, we can talk about that later. What Paul is not saying here is that God is the God of our luxuries. This is not the opening to some type of health and wealth gospel. It is true that every comfort, every luxury that we do have, though, comes from the Lord. Everything that we have, including life and health, comes from him, but rather the point here that Paul is making is that God is the source of our encouragement and our consolation in the midst of of our afflictions. In fact, if you were to do a word study of this word that we see translated here in this passage 10 times as comfort, you would see it translated elsewhere using other words uh, that are just as important. Encouragement, consolation. Luke chapter 2, for instance, when you have Simeon, uh, that old man who serves in the temple waiting to see what? What has he been hoping for? The promised Messiah, or what he calls what? The consolation of Israel. The great hope that the Messiah would come to deliver his people from their estate of sin and misery. This is the consolations of which Paul speaks, that God is the source of all consolation. How many of our afflictions does God come to console us in? Verse 4, this God comforts us in all of our afflictions. 
I think sometimes we read this and we try to find ways uh, to, 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 to have those promises claimed for anybody but us. Well, God, God, of course, will provide comfort in the midst of persecution, but it doesn't apply to this particular situation. I am left all by my lonesome. And yet that's not what Paul says here, is it? Paul says that God is the one who comforts us in all of our afflictions. All of us, I think, have the tendency to think that God has promised uh, comfort for everyone else but me, for any situation but mine. But if you do this word study, again, uh, on the, these words of suffering and affliction um, used uh, throughout the New Testament, you find that these are words used to describe a number of events. In Acts chapter 7, suffering and affliction are these same words used to describe famine and hunger. Not just a spiritual famine, not just a spiritual hunger, but actual physical hunger. Revelation chapter 2 speaks of physical poverty. John chapter 16, these sufferings speak of a mother's labor pains. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I love it, Paul speaks of marriage as an affliction. Um, He says, those who marry shall have affliction in this life, worldly troubles, conflict, financial duress, discouragements of everyday affairs. Paul describes his own uh, physical separation from uh, one of the churches, the church of Thessalonica, as an affliction in his heart. In other words, Paul has not simply restricted saying that God is the one who comforts us in the midst of persecution, though that is true. Rather, he says that God is the one who comforts us in all of our affliction. So you know what I think it means Uh, When Paul says that God is the source of all comfort, who consoles us in all of our afflictions, what I think he means is this, that God is the source of all comfort, who consoles us in all our afflictions. Not just some of our afflictions, not just most of them. He comes to bring comfort. Paul does not qualify the kind of afflictions. He has described his own afflictions that he suffered, but he applies it here as a broader principle for all believers to remind us that we do have a loving Heavenly Father who has promised to console us in all of our tribulations, all of our afflictions, be it the loss of a job, be it sickness, be it betrayal, be it even the conviction of sin. In verse 7, Paul says it's a promise not just for him, it is a promise for all believers. As the Lord has come to comfort, it, comfort us by his word, with the promises found in his word, he comforts us by his spirit, who is called our advocate elsewhere, the one who prays and intercedes for us with groanings when we do not even know how to pray, when even we don't even know what words to say, Romans chapter 8, 29. God gives us his word and gives us his spirit to comfort us, and he gives us one another. And this is the point that Paul's driving home here, that this comfort, it's a mutual comfort that when we suffer, it is for your comfort. When you suffer, it is that we might help come and comfort you. The purpose of suffering is not that we should drive ourselves inward. How do we move forward? The goal is to look outward and upward. Outward towards others, asking people to pray for us, and upwards towards the Lord himself, the Lord who has sent his Son to bear these same sorrows. Verse 4 tells us that God comforts us for a purpose. That we might bring consolation to those who have undergone similar sufferings. Be it divorce, miscarriage, betrayal, wayward children, 
So many of us undergo those things. I think sometimes we don't want to admit happen even among uh, the body of Christ. But we recognize that when these things happen, we have now been, uh, we're being shaped and molded and conformed to, to empathize with others who go through those same struggles that we might know how to comfort them as well. You think of Hebrews chapter 4. So much of Hebrews focuses on why it is that the Son of God took to himself flesh and bone. Why it was that he became man. And one of the reasons why Hebrews gives it is this, that he might sympathize with us in our weaknesses, that he might be made fit to be a faithful high priest. And now that we have been united to Christ, he molds us and shapes us to be conformed to the same image as those who would sympathize with those suffering around us, that we might pray for them, and we might know how to comfort them in times of need. What is your only comfort in life and death? Everything that comes to us comes from God's gracious hand. And we have a loving Heavenly Father who tailor makes a cross for each and every one of us. In His own providence, he shapes us to the cross so that our own particular lusts and passions and sins might be crucified and put to death so that in the midst of that suffering, we might look more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the path of discipleship, isn't it? Jesus, if anyone wants to follow me, what must he do? He must take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul is applying the message of the cross not just to the starting point of the Christian life, but rather the cross shapes the whole of the Christian life. It is one of both suffering and comfort. Just as Christ has been raised from the dead, we have been made partakers of the benefits of Christ, be it justification, adoption, sanctification, all those other benefits that flow from or accompany our union with Christ, right? Westminster Larger Catechism, question 69. One of those other benefits includes the comfort in the midst of sorrow. But because we have also been united, because we have been united to Christ, uh, uh, that also means we are united to Him and made partakers of His sufferings. Paul's going to go into much greater detail in this, particularly when we get to chapter four. But it's an important point that Paul has here. It's not that we suffer so that we die for others. Christ is the only substitute for sin. But we have been made to be conformed to the image of Christ in his suffering that we too might attain the resurrection from the dead. That's Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. And so Paul can praise God even in the midst of affliction as the God of all comfort and the God of all grace. This is not saying that cross-bearing merits salvation. Do not misunderstand me. What I am saying is that our daily cross-bearings, the sufferings that we undergo, it manifests the salvation that has been given to us freely through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's through the fires of affliction that God miraculously consoles us. Look at verse 6. Where, how is that consolation experienced? It's experienced when we patiently endure. It is, it is the fuel given in the midst of the fire. I, I, um, there's uh, Corey Ten Boom, if you've ever read The Hiding Place. Um, 
a family that um, was under Nazi persecution during the Second World War. And here's a woman whose family uh, got arrested. And, and before uh, her family was arrested, she had asked her father, she says, I, I, I'm so afraid that when it comes time, uh, in, in the face of persecution, that I'm going to deny my Savior. I'm so scared of that. There's a beautiful scene in the book where Father says, the Lord gives us grace for each day and he'll give you the grace and the strength for the needs that you have at hand. And that's what we have here. Is that God provides comfort. In fact, a surpassing comfort. If you look at verses 3 to 7, you find that the words suffering and affliction happen seven times. They occur seven times in that paragraph. You know how many times the word comfort appears in that paragraph? It's ten is to show us that there is a surpassing comfort that comes from the God of all mercies. One who comforts us in our afflictions, that we might pray for others. Not that we would snub our nose at others who are undergoing things, going, ah, oh, what have you done wrong? But that we might know how to intercede faithfully and pray for them. And so the reason Paul says he was even delivered was through the prayers of the saints. Paul writes here as a servant to the church. Everything he does is for the sake of the church. If he suffers, it is for their consolation. If he is encouraged, he said, it is for their encouragement. So be it affliction or comfort on Paul's part, everything that befalls Paul, whether good or ill, is done for a particular purpose. It's for the sake of building up the church. Even a church in the midst of incredible suffering. And it's something that reminds us that this is the nature of the Christian ministry. And again, this is something that Paul's going to get at as he highlights the nature of the Christian ministry. This is part of the package deal that every minister signs up for, even though you might not see it on the the package form when the congregation approves it. It's be prepared to suffer. But it's suffering for a purpose. It is suffering for the sake that the people of God might be edified and built up. It comes with the territory. Because it is the cross that shapes the life of the minister and sets a model for how the cross shapes the life of the congregation that we might bring consolation to those around it, be it through words of encouragement or through words of prayer. So that when others suffer, the Christian response would be not that of gossip, but that of intercession. It shapes and molds our entire disposition that we might be a source, a balm, a hospital for weary sinners. And isn't that what we would love uh, Westminster to be known for in the, in the city of Corvallis? Is here is a place for the afflicted to come and hear of the good news of one who has paid the price for all their sins and one who grants comfort in the midst of sorrow. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, that you are indeed the God of all comfort. You are our only comfort in life and in death. And so we pray that we would val- value you above all things. Um, Take this word and seal it on our hearts. Shape us and mold us to walk the path of righteousness, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.